Anesthesia Nerds, what's going on? I have a pretty cool guest today on the podcast, and that is Cody Creelman, the cow vet. I'm sure that you guys have seen him on his social media posts and his video posts talking about all things cow medicine. And we are very fortunate to have him with us today to talk about some cow-related anesthesia and pain management issues, which I am completely clueless about. So thank goodness we have him here to give us all of the information. Thanks for joining us, Cody. Thanks for having me on. So Cody, you are located in Alberta, Canada, correct? That's right. Okay. And why don't you tell us about kind of what you do every day and your what your practice looks like? Yeah, absolutely. So Alberta is a very interesting place in terms of cattle production because we have a, a convergence of the traditional cow-calf, you know, exactly what you would think about with the old-time ranches and and rangeland and stuff like that. But we're also at the at the convergence of feedlot medicine as well. So we have lots of very large industrial type feedlots. So it's kind of smack dab in the middle of that. And my practice career has focused solely on beef cattle medicine, uh, consulting, but then also individual animal medicine as well. So all facets of beef cattle specific, not even dairy. Uh, dairy cows are completely different species altogether. I'm, I'm sure. Wow. That even I didn't know <laughs> that they would be completely different, but it does make sense and probably how you're treating them, especially if if they or their products are going to be used for human consumption. I'm sure that comes into play, especially when you're talking about drugs and therapies. Absolutely. No, that's one of the biggest considerations when we're talking about pharmacology is is times and that also because of the economic side of things, cost is a factor as well. As far as your veterinary career, when did you decide, like, was there a point before vet school or during vet school that you were like, yeah, man, cows are like my jam and I want to do that? Well, I grew up on a cow-calf ranch. My dad was a banker turned cattle buyer and my mom was a third generation farm rancher. So I grew up with cows my whole life and it certainly was my comfort zone. But I loved every aspect of veterinary school. So if, whether it was small animal orthopedics or cat medicine or pig production or beef cattle production, I just loved every facet of it. So when I came into vet school, I was pretty sure I was going to go into mixed animal practice and then just kind of be the cow vet expert within that mixed animal practice, but got super confused in vet school because I even considered small animal internships at the time because I just loved every facet of the, the medicine and surgery. And uh, multiple job came up in, in the mixed animal realm and, and this one cow vet job. And it was agonizing to me to, to make a decision. And I thought, okay, well, I could try out this cow vet thing for a year or two, see what it's all about. And at the very least, I would kind of accelerate my goal of being the, uh, the cow expert in a mixed animal practice. So that's why I chose that route and it stuck. So I really enjoyed it. Wow. So like, you know, you had some experience being on your, you know, growing up with your family, but, you know, for vet students that are in it right now that maybe grew up in a more, or, you know, urban environment, they don't have hands-on experience, uh, but they're thinking they want to maybe do large animal. What are some, what's some advice you can give to them as how they could get started on that path? 
For sure. So I have had hundreds of veterinary students through my practice. Uh, part of the practice that I was at was a part of the distributed teaching hospital network of the University of Calgary. So we actually were training fourth year students coming through. And there was multiple times where I surprised students with their burning passion towards cattle medicine that they had no idea existed. So it can be quite <laughs> infectious. And a lot of that has to do with environment as well. So it, you get to be outside, you get to work with farmers and ranchers every day. You often get fed pie and buns and all kinds of good treats while you're out on the road. So uh, I have had uh, veterinarians join me. I've hired veterinarians out of, out of veterinary school with minimal cattle experience. Uh, and oftentimes they make just as good, if not better, veterinarians uh, than, than somebody who was from a farm and ranch background. Uh, they have no bad habits when it comes to, to cattle production and cattle medicine. Okay, so... I will tell you that full disclosure um, in this podcast, I know very little as far as cattle anesthesia and pain management, which is why I'm very excited to talk to you. And I had only one experience growing up with a cow and it was a calf that just headbutted the crap out of me and knocked me over. And ever since then, I've been like, okay, that's fine. You stay over there and I'll stay over here. <laughs> so the secret to success is the same in cattle medicine as it is in any other facet of what we do in veterinary medicine. And that is just have a great mentor. So it, uh, I, I always say I can teach anybody to be a cow vet, but I can't teach a great personality. So for me, that was always the number one thing is somebody who's just interested and pleasant to be around. And from there, cattle production is pretty easy. I can I can train you within a year or two. So there's still hope for me, maybe. There I is. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to lie. I'm intimidated because they're just so large. Um, you know, I mean, I can deal with a cat and a rabbit and that kind of stuff. But mainly, again, this is an anesthesia and pain management podcast. So uh, what I want to talk to you is really about how do you deal with cows that are in pain? And what are some of the ways that you can recognize cows are in pain? I just think of cows as being so stoic and they're not going to show you any of these signs. But I was interested to find that there was actually a Scandinavian study in 2015 that was showing that researchers were actually looking at pain behaviors in cattle and some signs and facial expressions that you can use to recognize pain behaviors. So what are you seeing out in the field and how do you recognize pain in cattle? For sure. So you're 100% right in terms of them being a prey species, that level of stoicism makes our job difficult at times to be able to identify that. It's not like some wimpy dog who's just laying off in the corner uh, sulking, right? So these, these animals, and even when it comes to disease detection, it can be really, really difficult for us to kind of narrow that down and identify whether or not we are identifying pain. There is lots of things that we can look for in terms of body posture, facial expression, and and then also just activities within the herd. So how are they acting within that, that herd environment? Are they off on the peripheries is a really important one as opposed to, to milling about uh, their level of appetite. So they, they can suppress their appetite. And then usually one of the manifestations manifestations in animals that that aren't dealing with a different disease process is also just their their overall 
excitability. So uh, oftentimes we can see uh, animals that are in pain, they will be acting quite a bit more excited as opposed to to a normal sort of behavior of them being stoic, just normally huh. integrated in the herd. That's interesting. I would, you know, I would kind of think the opposite, but that does make sense. Yeah, so we we only have two options. It's it's fight or flight. So when they are exhibiting pain, oftentimes it's it's manifested in that sort of fight behavior. So it's one of the things that we do look for. Again, you know, I'm used to a small animal in the clinic. And when we talk about anesthesia and pain management in those patients, um, it's pretty, you know, regimented. It's pretty, um, you know, we have all these protocols we follow. We, can, we are pretty open with the drugs that we can use. But I would assume that it's very different if you're dealing with an animal that would be later for human consumption. Again, you're going to be limited in your drug choices. But what do you do if you have a, a cattle that's out on the field and maybe, you know, walk us through if you had to do something out in the field, like a laceration repair or whatever your most common thing is, how do you approach anesthesia in that case? For sure. You know, the, the things that we have to think about in terms of food animal production, like you mentioned, uh, are withdrawal times. So we don't have necessarily the, the, the published resources available. And there is some even intra-country differences as well. So uh, when it comes to extra-labeled drug usage within Canada versus the U.S., in Canada, we actually have a lot more leeway to be creative as long as we're looking for uh, potentially published withdrawal times. We have the ability to access what's called GFARAD or CGFARAD in Canada, which is a group of pharmacologists that we can contact if we want to use uh, different types of drugs that don't have those established withdrawal times. In the U.S. around the extra label drug use uh, rules, if there is an approved food animal drug that already exists that has established withdrawal time, the veterinarian's hands are tied a little bit more uh, use that drug unless there's an extraneous circumstance so we you know there is a little bit of leeway in in order for us to be able to use some of the pharmaceuticals but then cost also becomes a factor right so we have our withdrawal times but we also have our costs that we have to worry about and then also as you mentioned just field situations we don't have access uh, necessarily to advanced monitoring so we do have to be careful as we're applying that to a field situation now, there's kind of two sort of routes that we take when we're thinking about uh, pain control, because another thing is there's also procedures that are being done on farm where there's not a veterinarian present, and we have to be able to implement pain control strategies in order for our client to be able to manage and mitigate and recognize pain. And then there's the situations where us as the veterinarians are able to manage and mitigate pain as well. So there's it, it, it is complex, but uh, overall, the, the number of pharmaceuticals that we do have access to is quite limited. So in terms of, let's do a producer example, depending on the country that we're in, we have beef cattle codes of practice that, that we should follow. So in, when we're talking about these routine painful procedures, so dehorning and castration being the two main ones, these are, these are procedures that farmers and ranchers are able to do on, on farm. And it is up to us to, to be able to educate those farmers and ranchers in the different options that are available for pain mitigation. 
Now in Canada, we have these, these beef cattle codes of practice that are pretty specific. So with dehorning, uh, producers need to provide analgesia for any that does not have the, or that does have the horn, but attached. So that's around two to three months. So if you're dehorning before two to three months, it is not required to administer pain control, but if it is after it is required. And with castration, uh, we have a six month cutoff. So this arbitrary kind of six month cutoff. So producers are legally allowed to castrate uh, without providing any sort of pain control prior to that. And if it's after six months of age, then they do have to provide some sort of pain control. Now, that's not specified as to what that is. So that could be administration of an NSAID, that could be epidural, that could be a testicular block. So there, there's kind of a variety of different things that, that we can implement. Now, I've been really happy in my practice career seeing this transition and this this uptake of, of producers to really embrace uh, pain control. Uh, one of the, the kind of revolutionary things that, that we have up here in Canada is access to oral meloxicam. So oral meloxicam has now become the mainstay to use uh, pain control for a variety of different procedures. And it, uh, and I'm happy to say that, that oftentimes they're, they're not following the beef cattle codes of practice. They're actually going beyond. So in a large percent of cattle operations for some of these painful procedures, they are pain control, even when it's not mandated by codes of practice. That's excellent. And I would assume that that's, you know, because more analgesia is being taught in vet schools so much more now. I mean, I see more analgesia being taught in, in school, in the vet schools and the technician programs. I mean, even so much more than when I was in school 15 years ago. So I wanted to touch on something that you said, because I'm a huge fan of local blocks. And I think that you know, even in uh, private practice, we are using a ton of testicular blocks now. So going along with the multimodal, um, do you ever recommend doing a meloxicam or an NSAID plus a testicular block? Absolutely. Uh, I have implemented testicular blocks in the feedlots successfully when it when it comes to what we call belly nut surgery. So there's a percentage of animals that come into a feed yard that are cryptorchid. Uh, that's either a cryptorchid that has happened naturally or through miscastration. So sometimes Ugh. producers do banned castration and they can't count to two. So there's one retained testy above the, the scrotal band if we're using an, an elastrator band. And the feedlots have to go in and cut that testicle out. So it's not sitting in a descended scrotum. Now, they have uh, very effectively been able to use testicular blocks in order to control pain that way on top of using uh, a product like oral meloxicam. So it, it is possible to teach producers that. Now, when I approach castration, so whether that is in a calf that is eight weeks of age or if it's in a, a more mature animal, let's say 12 months of age, I'm always using testicular blocks. So how I approach it, and, and I think this is a great, um, a great standard for us as veterinarians to do because there's the, the old guard that would just go and castrate and not provide any sort of, of analgesia. That still exists. There's still older practitioners that are not providing any level of pain control. 
So oh, how I, I <laughs> so it's how I approach it still happens with companion <laughs> animals too. Yeah. So how I approach every single castration, regardless of if it's a little baby or or older, is I always provide a lidocaine epidural. I provide an NSAID and I do a testicular block. And I can do it in rapid succession. I'm not slowing down production by any means. If, you, if you're hitting your epidural right, it is almost instantaneous. And when the producers see me do this, then they're, they're really encouraged because they just see how less reactive those, those cattle are. So we have some of our shoot uh, parameters that we look like look at so we have vocalization and we have fighting and then we also have exit time as our other sort of parameters in terms of assessing level of painfulness and when we're using this multimodal approach then we are um, it's significantly reduced for sure one of the problems that does exist with lidocaine and producers is some veterinarians are hesitant to prescribe uh, lidocaine for producers to use on their own uh, because of the potential for misuse. You could think about the situation. This is the horror situation where you have the, the producer that has the bottle of lidocaine and, and a cow needs a C-section and the big fear is thinking that the producer is just going to go ahead and attempt their own C-section. So there, I'm sure it has happened before, and I know that's why some veterinarians are hesitant. But I believe through proper education and client veterinarian trust that we can mitigate a lot of those things to allow producers to access things like lidocaine for different procedures. Uh, another, another block that I commonly love to teach producers is the corneal nerve block uh, for dehorning. It's very simple for them to learn. Uh, it's very low volume, and they can truly see uh, the effect that it has, and it just actually ends up speeding up the procedure time because the animal isn't fighting in the shoot. And then one of the nice little tips that exists is if we're using uh, lidocaine with epinephrine, and we're doing a corneal nerve block, we actually have hemostasis that also happens when we do the corneal uh, and we chop off a horn because of the, the vasoconstriction. So producers like that too. Uh, there's just overall less blood. So yeah, it's a complicated situation and it's certainly rancher and veterinarian specific of whether or not we allow our, our producers to have access to these types of things because a lot of times dehorning and, and castration are done not with the veterinarian standing there. Yeah, that's a really good point, because that's not something that we would have to deal with, per se, in companion animal medicine. But it's really nice to know that these local, like, you know, you're a fan of the local box, as am I, and that the times, you know, maybe are changing, and we're giving better overall multimodal pain management to all animals, <laughs> especially the ones that are, you know, ultimately going to give their lives for us and food. I'd like to know that they, you know, lived a pretty happy life if possible. For sure. One of the, just, just as an aside where I think veterinarians can improve upon 
just as we're on the topic of local blocks, is abscesses. So one of my favorite things to do is to block abscesses because my primary tenant in cow medicine is to treat the cows the way that I would like to be treated in that situation. So if I if I went into the, the human ER with a massive arm abscess and they were trying to lance it without providing any sort of analgesia, I would probably be upset. And yeah. So, so I, I love teaching students and teaching other veterinarians. And that's one thing I've been able to show on my social media and videos is the proper way for us to approach abscess surgeries because they are surgeries and providing us a, a little lidocaine line block prior to us uh, entering into that abscess capsule makes things so much better. It, it, it helps the cow obviously, but it also helps us as surgeons because the cows don't react and we don't have to do that sort of stereotypical uh, slash and and flinch. Uh, We can enter that abscess capsule very controlled and and I just love it as an option and I wish I saw more uh, local box when we're dealing with abscesses in cows. And so you're using lidocaine for that block as well? Yes, absolutely. Probably because it's very, it's pretty fast acting. Yep, super fast acting, and then of course, uh, we we're, we're typically restricted in terms of of our other, you know, I, the other products when it comes to withdrawal time. So that you know, lidocaine uh, in terms of my local is is my mainstay for sure. Awesome. So um, just to kind of wrap things up. I love that you're a fan of multimodal analgesia. I love all of the local blocks. And if people want to kind of learn more, uh, where can they find you on the interwebs? Uh, just Google my name and you, and pick one of the <laughs> pick one of the social medias and send me a message. So Instagram, uh, Facebook, you'll find me and and can easily connect. Okay. And you have you said you have some videos of some of your local blocks on your social media channels. Yes, absolutely. So just type in Creelman Abscess on YouTube and you'll get to see how I how I approach a, a lot of those different things. And and yeah, we could we could talk for an hour just on local blocks. It is uh, such a valuable tool for us in in cattle medicine using paravertebral and line blocks and corneal nerve blocks. And we didn't even talk about, you know, eye blocks, modified Pedersen and stuff like that. So we'll we'll have to talk again. Yes. And we will put a link to uh, Dr. Krillman's YouTube channel in our show notes for you guys. Um, and uh, I want to thank you so much for getting up early. I know uh, I'm on the East Coast of the U.S. and you uh, had to get up a little earlier for this uh, interview. So I certainly appreciate you making time for Veterinary Anesthesia Nerds podcast this morning. No problem. Thank you for having me on. All right. We will certainly have Dr. Croman back on when we want to talk more about any large animal stuff. And you guys, make sure to check out his social media channels and send us a message at the Veterinary Anesthesia Nerds if you have any questions about this show. Thanks so much, Dr. Croman. Thank you. Thank you so much to Dr. Kroman for joining us for that episode. If you guys want more information about him and his programs, you can check out the link in our show notes. Right now, everybody should be at IVX, but instead, because of COVID, we're doing everything virtual. So if you guys are out there attending the virtual IVX this uh, next coming days, 
make sure you check out Noah Jones' lectures. He's one of our um, speakers who's going to be at the Anesthesia Nerds Symposium next year. So make sure you check out all of his lectures and all of the other fantastic tech lectures that are out there from people like Jeff Backus, Karen Roach, etc. Some really, really good information out there. Also, you can check out the Veterinary Anesthesia Nerds Facebook page for all kinds of other continuing education opportunities that are going to be held online this year. And hopefully we will see you next year in person at the Veterinary Anesthesia Nerds Symposium. Have a great week, guys.